Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years, 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film's so highly regarded. I'm one of your hosts, Trey Hooks, and with me, as always, is Blaine Dowler. Hello, Trey. Hello, Blaine. This time we're looking at You Can't Take It With You, released on September 1st, 1938, directed by Frank Capra with a screenplay by Robert Riskin, starring Gene Arthur, Lionel Barrymore, Jane Stewart, and Edward Arnold. The film begins with Anthony Kirby, banking magnate, about to sign the deal of his career. The only thing standing in his way is the purchase of a home owned by Grandpa Vanderhoff, played by Lionel Barrymore. He instructs his broker, John Blakely, to get it by any means possible. Anthony Kirby's son, Tony, played by Jimmy Stewart, is in love with his secretary, Alice Sycamore, who's played by Jean Arthur. Alice takes Tony to meet her family, an eccentric bunch, which includes Grandpa Vanderhoff. Alice is afraid of the two families meeting, but agrees to a dinner after Tony proposes. Tony sabotages the dinner by purposefully bringing his parents on the wrong night, so they can meet the Sycamores as they really are, to Alice's chagrin. The night is a complete shambles, and thanks to some careless flyer printing from Ed, the brother-in-law, the machinations of Blakely, and an unattended firework, everyone's arrested. In prison, Tony's mother makes Alice feel small and unworthy of being in the Kirby family, while Grandpa gives Anthony Kirby, played by Edward Arnold, a lecture on what's important in life. He, too, was once a successful businessman, but one day on the elevator up, he couldn't take it anymore, took the elevator back down, and left that life behind. The families are arraigned in night court, and the Sycamores fined for making and selling fireworks without a license. But the community rallies together to pay the fine. When the judge asks why the Kirbys were at the Sycamores, Anthony Kirby and his wife lie. Alice, incensed, tells the reason they were there and runs away. With Alice gone, the Sycamores decide to sell their house. Anthony Kirby has everything he wants, and the time has come to close the deal. Tony quits the family business and tells his father without Alice he too is leaving. Ramsey, the rival he's putting out of business, dies of a heart attack after confronting Kirby. Kirby begins the elevator ride up to sign the papers, and he remembers Grandpa Vanderhoff's words. As soon as the doors to the boardroom open, he quickly closes the elevator, rides down, and goes to the Sycamore house. Tony's there looking for Alice, who's come to tell the family not to move. Grandpa invites Anthony Kirby to join him in a harmonica duet to play his troubles away. The two men do, and Alice and Tony realize they have both men's blessing to marry. The film ends with Anthony Kirby having sold the house back to the Sycamores, and the Kirbys and Sycamores enjoying each other's company at dinner. So, Blaine, what were your first impressions of You Can't Take It With You? I think this is easily the best comedy that has won Best Picture to date, at least of of those that we've discussed. It was just really strong. I, I would take this over It Happened One Night, which is really the other comedy and another Frank Capra winner. So there's a definite theme there. I mean, we've got a cast who really know how to do it. 
those of us who are mostly familiar with Lionel Barrymore as Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life may be very pleasantly surprised by just how charming and likable he is in this from the first moment on screen going forward. It's an entirely different role, but one he also excels at. Jimmy Stewart became a star with this. He was not a name when this movie started off, but Frank Capra, or Frank Capra sorry, had seen his work and said, yeah, that's who I want. That's the guy. That's Tony. It's really just everyone's firing on all cylinders, and it seems natural. And one of the things I really appreciated, when a character tells a joke that's funny, other characters may laugh, because that's what would really happen. And yet it's not something you see in a lot of comedies. The humor in it's more diegetic humor. They're playing to each other and not to the audience. For the most part, yeah. I mean, there's a little bit of a fish-out-of-water stuff in here, which is more for the audience, especially when Mr. Poppins first comes in and sees how crazy this is. But yeah, yeah, it is really well done. I agree. This is Capra's fourth nomination for Best Director. He may be one of the most nominated directors that we've covered so far. Because you mentioned he won for It Happened One Night, which we've covered. But he was nominated for Lady for a Day and for Lost Horizon up to this point in his career. Sir, and he'd um, also won for Mr. Deeds Go Goes to Town. Okay. So this was his third win in five nominations. So yeah, he was definitely at the top of his game. There was actually a lot of tension between him and Cohen, who was in charge of Columbia Studios. Because his previous film had taken two years to make. And that was Lost Horizon. It went way over budget because of reshoots. And it was the only one that wasn't a financial success. Not because it wasn't popular, but just because the budget had ballooned so far out of control. It needed to be like the most successful movie of all time to make money. So that one lost money. And there was also tension between them because Cohen had been advertising movies overseas as having been produced by Frank Capra because his name would sell even though Capra had nothing to do with them. And Capra wasn't happy about that and was actually in a lawsuit with the head of Columbia. So they finally settled on an amount to pay for it and said reduced Capra's contract with Columbia down to just two more films, one of which was this one that Capra had to fight for because it started as a Broadway play that Capra had seen and loved, but they had really changed it. There's way more locations in this than you'd see in the average stage play. And in fact, in the original play, every scene takes place in the living room of the Sycamore house. So every scene that takes place elsewhere was created for the film. There's only one that was even referenced in the play, and that was the, the scene in the, the courthouse. So they talk about that, but you don't see any of that. So it's really been expanded. But if I hadn't read that in the booklet that came with the, my deluxe edition Blu-ray here, I'd have had no idea because it was integrated so naturally. And just the, the cast, Capra likes to reuse actors that he's familiar with. So we've already mentioned Jimmy Stewart and Lionel Barrymore. There's a number of other people here that you will also recognize from It's a Wonderful Life, which came out later, but I think modern audiences are more likely to be familiar with. H.B. Warner played Ramsey. He's Mr. Gower in It's a Wonderful Life. Samuel S. Hins plays Paul Sycamore, and he's George Bailey's father. There's a lot of these guys you would recognize. Or with Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Edward Arnold's the political boss behind Claude Rains in that film, and Gene Arthur's the love interest with it, or within it again. 
Yeah, Capper has an eye for talent, and when he gets them, he likes to hang on to them. Because these are all people who just nailed it. We've we've mentioned that Capper won for Best Director for this, of course. The other nominations were Best Supporting Actress for Spring Byington, who is playing Penny Sycamore, Alice Sycamore's mother. Best Writing for Robert Ruskin for his adaptation of the play. Best Cinematography, Joseph Walker. Best Film Editing, Jen, Gene Havlick. And Best Sound Recording to the Columbia Studio Sound Department. Yeah, although it only actually took home two of those awards, which is kind of surprising. Now, Spring, Spring Byington, we've seen before. She had a much larger part in this one, but she was Midshipman Byam's mother in Mutiny on the Bounty. Right, yeah. I hadn't made that connection, but yes. Yeah, it, it is well done. So, anyway, th- this was my first exposure to the film, and actually just watched it last night. How about your history with it? This is the first time that I've seen it. It's it's odd in that it's one of Capra's two best picture winners, but I would say it's one of his lesser known works. And I mean, I have my theories as to why that may be, but I, I hadn't seen it until the watch through for this podcast. Yeah. So your general thoughts on it? I really enjoyed it. I love Lionel Barrymore. We've talked about him before as well. I was really fascinated with how they worked around his physical condition. You know, he had debilitating arthritis later in his career, and this film's around the time that it set in. So, you know, Grandpa Vanderhoff being consistently on crutches was to accommodate what he had to go through with his arthritis, but they make it seem and look natural like if you didn't if you weren't aware of that you wouldn't know that that was going on you know i'm with you i can't i can't think of a single person who's misplaced in this at all even the very small parts you know charles lane as the irs agent who unsuccessfully tries to deliver an irs bill to grandpa vanderhoff you know He's had a huge career as a character actor, but again, if you've watched It's a Wonderful Life, he's the agent of Potter's who tells him that if Potter doesn't do something about Bailey, maybe one day he'll be working for the Bailey Savings and Loan when they're reviewing the plots of uh, the real estate holdings that the Savings and Loan had. You know, I I was impressed with Ann Miller in this. I I don't know that I would have known that she was 15 when she made this. You wouldn't have guessed that, that's for sure. You know, Dub Dub Taylor as Ed Carmichael, the brother-in-law. If you've watched anything in the 70s and 80s that was, I'm going to call, somewhat redneck cinema from, you know, the Dukes of Hazard on down, you've seen Dub Taylor before. And I would have never in a million years thought of him as being in a Frank, a Frank Capra film. Yeah, and we've got Eddie Rochester Anderson. Rochester's the nickname based on the character he played for the Jack Benny show. And that's, if anything, the depiction of Reba and Donald would be the only stroke against the film. And it probably would not have been considered a stroke against the film by most audiences in 1938. But they, they've got the the African-American mate, which is, you know, right whatever. That was the time. And her fiancé is on relief. So basically, he's just collecting unemployment. He's not working anywhere. 
And he, when they're talking about moving later, he only agrees to him when he finds out, oh yeah, he can go on relief there. So it does lean into some of the, the stereotypes about laziness from those people. So that, like I said, it, it was the, a common kind of joke in 1938 and the kind that places like the NAACP were upset with it and telling Hollywood about it, but there was no, getting no traction in it and things weren't changing. If Hollywood studios found that, yeah, if any actors objected to those such depictions, they just got blacklisted and didn't get the parts. So the parts would go to other people. Well, Maybe talk about that a little bit more next month because it fits a much bigger factor there. But that's really, I would say, the only stroke against the film is that modern audiences will not accept some of the stereotypes that were more readily accepted in 1938. You had the same thing with the character of Kolenkov a little bit. You know, they, and I'm putting in air quotes, dance teacher who makes sure always to come over in time for dinner, drops his laundry off to be done at the house, kind of the... I, I don't know if that was intended to be a, an immigrant stereotype or if it was more a starving artist stereotype. Uh, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, with that one, there there is some of that. It, I wasn't sure how much of that would have been... Like more that the stereotypes about Russians or immigrants and how much of it was, you know, well, let's add another eclectic character. Someone else who just shows up and stays because he likes it, looking for an excuse to be there all the time. You know, like Depina, the man who came to deliver ice nine years ago and just never left. It was a, leaning a little bit into that. It, it didn't stand out as strongly to me, possibly because I was less aware of those stereotypes. But the, the only real Russian stereotypes I came with that were that even they call it out, oh, he, he's Russian, they're they're cranky about everything, nothing pleases them, which is a stereotype I've heard, but not at all what I experienced when I was, actually, I, I've got a master's degree in physics, and in particle physics, there's a lot of international collaborations. So I worked closely with a lot of Russians, because that piece of the project I was on was a collaboration between Canada, Germany, and Russia, for the most part. And like most stereotypes, it didn't actually fit once I had the chance to work with a large number of people who were supposedly in that group. So yeah, I think you've, you've got something there, but that one didn't stand out until you mentioned it just now. So what were some of the other nominations this year, Blaine? So if you're just running through the nomination list, it was actually a fairly competitive year. We've got The Adventures of Robin Hood, Alexander's Ragtime Band, Boys Town, The Citadel, Four Daughters, Grand Delusion, which is the first foreign language film ever to be nominated for Best Picture, Jezebel, Pygmalion, and Test Pilot. And it's worth noting that Pygmalion was also not an American production. It just wasn't foreign language because it was a British production. And those are amongst the nominations. Looking at it today, going back, the other highly rated films that came out the same year are Bringing Up Baby, Port of Shadows, Holiday, Angels with Dirty Faces, and The Lady Vanishes. Those are also consistently very near the top of the list. And I can see why. I haven't seen them all, but every one of those films I've seen, I could see taking home the prize and not really complaining about it, right? It, I have seen from that The Adventures of Robin Hood, which is a really fun adventure film. Absolutely no objections there. I've seen Bringing Up Baby, which is also a very fun comedic romp with Cary Grant rather than Jimmy Stewart, who apparently hated being called Jimmy. 
you prefer James. And the lady vanishes, I've seen, because, you know, I love Hitchcock films, so I've seen almost all of them. And that is another very well-made Hitchcock, but it's also from his British era. We will talk about his first American film in the not-too-distant future. And I've got Grand Illusion and Pygmalion in a box set from the Criterion Collection. The, uh, the 50th Celebration of Janus Films, they put out a collection of 50 films distributed by Janus Films, and those are in that list. And if you know the Criterion Collection, they are fairly selective in their films. Most of them, I would say, are pretty great, and the ones that are not are at the very least interesting, and they have a lot to say about them, with perhaps a couple of exceptions, because they also... They were shifting distributors for the DVD platform and went with Bonavista, and one of the requirements was that The Rock and Armageddon get Criterion releases, which I think is the only reason they're in the collection. But that's a conversation for much, much later, if it turns up in this podcast at all. So, out of the nominees... I agree with you. It's a super strong year. I've seen The Adventures of Robin Hood, Boys Town, Grand Illusion, and Jezebel. And it's, I always find it easier to pick a best picture when they're all from the same genre. So, for example, between Grand Illusion, Jezebel, and Boys Town, I have a, I have a favorite. But then when I have to put them up against You Can't Take It With You and The Adventures of Robin Hood, it gets much much harder for me to pick a best film. Yeah, so when you get into the apples and oranges type comparisons. And a lot of people had a tough time. If you look at the IMDb scores for this year, You Can't Take It With You is the highest rated film of the year. But the ratings for You Can't Take It With You, Bringing Up Baby, Angels With Dirty Faces, and The Adventures of Robin Hood all round to 7.9 out of 10. It's not a wide margin. And then at 7.8, you also get Point of Shadows, Pygmalion, The Lady Vanishes, and Holiday. Jezebel is next up at 7.5. We've got a version of The Christmas Carol at 7.5 here. Mm-hmm. The one with Reginald Owen and Jean Lockhart. I'm seeing Vivacious Lady. There's a lot of these that are in the sevens. The Amazing Dr. Clutterhouse, Adventures of Tom Sawyer. There's Alexander's Ragtime Band at 36. If we look at the letterbox scores, they actually have Bringing Up Baby first. Then Port of Shadows, Holiday, Angels with Dirty Faces, Lady Vanishes, Robin Hood. We've got Olympia Part 1, Festival of the Nations, Pygmalion, La Bête Humaine, The Baker's Wife, Olympia Part 2, Festival of Beauty, and then You Can't Take It With You comes in at number 12. Which, you know, 12 for the year makes you question, well, why is it Best Picture? But it's also got a strong rating, 3.7 out of 5, which works out to about 7.4 out of 10. So not too far off the IMDb score. And letterbox users are, I would say, more biased towards innovation rather than entertainment as compared to the IMDb users. So it it's extremely entertaining, but not necessarily innovative in terms of filmmaking. I, I mentioned earlier I have a theory as to why I think this may be one of Capra's lesser-known films. If you have seen Mr. Smith Goes to Washington or particularly It's a Wonderful Life before you've seen You Can't Take It With You, I could see some people feeling that this was repetitive in the sense of there's a lot of the same broad, very broad plot points and a lot of the same themes. So similar to how someone can watch, I don't know, Abbott and Costello as their first comedy team and then not understand 
why people think someone like Laurel and Hardy are so funny, not understanding that everything you saw for the first time that you found funny when you saw Abbott and Costello, Laurel and Hardy had done first, or even a Buster Keaton or a Charlie Chaplin had done first. If you didn't know the sequence of films, you could think that Capra was copying himself when you can't take it with you. Whereas, I think he found themes that really resonated with him here, and more fully fleshed them out and gave them their own individual films in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, the courthouse scene is definitely reminiscent of one of the scenes in It's a Wonderful Life, that's for sure. Even though, like you said, this came first. I glossed over it in the synopsis because I, I, I never want to give enough details to ruin the film for our listeners, but the deal is essentially a munitions monopoly. There's a lot of talk of uh, senators and how the government's going to respond, and a lot of those are themes that get further developed in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. The plot of this and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington both hinge on a piece of property that becomes highly valued. And then with It's a Wonderful Life, you have the whole theme of what's the value of a man? Is a man's value in his bank account or in the friends and influence that he's had? Yeah. I think you nailed it when you said he found themes that resonated with them. So I, I think that, yeah, he he was able to touch on them in this film and then chose to expand them further in those other two films. So, yeah, I get why if you're... If you've seen the others, it goes in. That may also be perhaps why It's a Wonderful Life didn't do as well in the box office initially as they thought, because it wouldn't have seemed as fresh to those audiences, because It's a Wonderful Life didn't do well financially until it had fallen into the public domain. And then, well, here's a, a James Stewart movie that TV networks can run for free at Christmas time, and it's Christmas theme. But oh, and look, it actually happens to be good. And it, it built its audience that way. If it hadn't been allowed to fall into the public domain because it had performed so poorly, it wouldn't necessarily have become what it is now. But I can see that, and that may be why this isn't as well-known. It also seems like it wasn't as well-preserved as other films, so it wasn't as easily accessible. There's This special edition also has a you know features on how extensive the restoration had to be before they would even try to present it on Blu-ray. So a lot of work had to go into it because it wasn't as well-maintained as some of the other films from the day. So that may also have been a factor. If I were going to pick, I, I guess I would say I have no objections to You Can't Take It With You being the best film of the year. So I'll go with that today. You could ask me tomorrow and I would say The Adventures of Robin Hood. That They're just so apples and oranges. I, I think it would completely depend on mood as to which one's the best one at any given time that you asked me. Yeah, I would agree with that. Of those I've seen, if you force me to pick after watching them all recently and not just for the, the morning after Afterglow of having seen this for the first time, you know, if I were to rewatch all of those, I would be hard-pressed to pick a choice. So you can take it with you. Bringing Up Baby, Adventures of Robin Hood. Bringing Up Baby wasn't even nominated, yeah. but any of those three could have taken home the award that year and I would have been fine with it. I, I definitely want to get to Angels with Dirty Faces. I intended to, but life got in the way. Is That was also up for Best Director, directed by Michael Curtis, whose name we will definitely be hearing again. If you have access to it, I would still recommend checking out Jezebel. It, it will make a nice just juxtaposition for next month. Okay. 
Similar themes, completely different cast, completely different focus. Yeah, and also produced by Halby Wallace, who he actually produced three of the Best Picture nominations for this year. There's Adventures of Robin Hood, Four Daughters, and Jezebel were all Halby Wallace productions. So I, I don't own a copy of that myself, but I believe my my mother does. I think she's got a whole Betty Davis collection. So that, yeah, I will try to track that down before next month's film. So uh, should we get to who we would recommend this to? This is an easy one for me. Everyone. I can't think of anyone who wouldn't like or be charmed by this film. Yeah, it's anyone who is open to a black and white movie would... I would expect to enjoy this film. I mean, with the the one caveat that the African-American characters and potentially the Russian character are treated too stereotypically, especially with the stereotypes that prevailed at the time. John Suntress of the Word Balloon podcast will sometimes talk about retro shaming, where people now are up in arms over things that happened in the past. Not that it makes it right, but yeah, this is one of those cases where the target movie-going audiences of 1938 are not likely to have objected to this. Because, quite frankly, movie studios were only trying to sell tickets to white people. And their communities, especially when segregation laws were still in effect, didn't necessarily recognize the problems with this. And even then, it's really just those two lines. And in the case of Donald saying, yeah, it's all in relief, so that unemployment insurance... You could just as easily point to Reba, who may be the hardest working character in this movie. When she always has dinner on the table, she's making enough for extras because she doesn't know how many people Grandpa's going to bring with him after he walks through the park on the way home tonight. Mm-hmm. And she's doing other people's laundry. She's and you know she's not she's doing it without complaint. She so you could point to her as well. the The work she's doing is stereotypical, but she shows zero sign of the laziness that they've got from Donald that they're playing for jokes. Well, and and I was going to say, in the way the rest of the family treats her, the worst you could say is maybe they take her for granted, but there's no maliciousness on display. You, you know, there's no subservience to the level of, hey, you pick that up. Hey, you, why did you do that? It, it, you know, a lot of times with servant characters, there's kind of a disrespect in how the employers speak to them you don't have that with the sycamores and reba yeah she is treated like a member of the family even though her role is stereotypical it's it's reba i definitely get the impression that if reba was in trouble they'd have her back and they would fight for her just as hard as they would fight for blood relation yeah so yeah there there is that too so it's not a huge caveat but it's the only caveat i can think of yeah it's very easy to recommend this so it, it's got some of the most naturalistic acting I think we've seen to date as well. As James Garner said, it hit, to him, the sign of a great actor was that you could never catch them acting. You just look at the screen and see the character. And that's what we've got for this entire cast. And some of that is Capra's directing. If, apparently, when he had a crowd scene, he wouldn't just say, okay, mill about. He would tell every extra, this is why you're here. And he would direct every extra in the scene so if you know if if there was a scene in a grocery store every extra in that scene would know what they're shopping for because capra told them so they would all act like people with purpose and make it just that much more natural and that much more realistic i can see that when you said that i thought of the scene of the, the neighbors gathering together outside to talk about the landlord notices that they had all received Mm-hmm. 
the way they came together, it wasn't like, okay, three, two, one, you walk in stage left, three, two, it, you got the sense of, hey, these two people are talking and they call out to this third person who's passing by and they interrupt them and they pull that person in. Yeah, it, it just, it fits. And it's things like that, that you don't notice when you're watching it because it just seems right. Whereas it's the kind of thing where it's so easy to get it wrong and it stands out as, oh yeah, you know, that person's hitting his mark and waiting to be brought in the conversation. But no, those extras, they're they're in there on a mission before their neighbors draw them into the conversation. So it, it makes a huge difference in terms of how naturally the whole film fits together. In fact, there's a great quote about Jimmy Stewart in the bonus features. In the reviews of the film, one reviewer declared, No actor on the screen today manages to appear more unconscious of script, camera, and director than Mr. Stewart. And while that's true, it doesn't stand out in this film as much as it would in others because that's true of the entire cast. That's the kind of performance Capra knew how to get out of people, and he also was careful to pick people who would do that. Years later, Stewart would say that his favorite female co-star was Gene Arthur. Not sure how much more we have to say. It's kind of a short podcast because this is one of those times where I think we would say, yeah, the Academy did well that year. The Academy did well that year. There's We've picked what very little offensive there could be about it. I mean, it it this is one of those films, uh, again, we've mentioned it's got a great cast. There's a lot of, oh, that guy or that or that girl to, you know, keep it equal, call-outs as you see it. You're going to recognize the judge from the courtroom scene. You're going to rec- recognize Poppins. You're going to recognize Blakely, the real estate broker. You're you're going to know all of these actors. You may not know their names, but you've seen them. Yeah, and that's true of a lot of them. Yeah, this it's filled with people you'd recognize, right down to... Kirby's secretary, uncredited. <laughs> so it's an uncredited role? It's Ian Wolfe. He's got 304 acting credits to his name. His last credit was playing a forger in the 1990 Dick Tracy. To me, he'll always be Hirsch, the butler from WKRP in Cincinnati. Everyone here was so carefully chosen. They, they were all very talented performers that, yeah, you will see them again and again and again because... Capra had an eye for talent, and everyone wanted to work with these people because they were just that good. There's no shortage of recognizable people here. So, yeah, uh, yeah if we've got really nothing more to add, well, then next month we're going to be talking about Gone with the Wind, which is well-known. 1939 was marketed by the studios as the greatest year for movies because box office was starting to tip down. The war had broken out in Europe, so they were really working hard to promote it and get the dollars up and maintain it. So Gone with the Wind is the winner. Those of you who also want to see the other nominations along with us, we've got Dark Victory, another Betty Davis film, Goodbye Mr. Chips, Love Affair, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Ninochka with Greta Garbo, Of Mice and Men, Stagecoach, The Wizard of Oz, and Wuthering Heights. So there's another year with strong contenders to discuss. I don't know about you, Blaine. I, I think it speaks volumes that um, obviously our listeners have probably caught on that, you know, you and I both have fairly good film collections, but Love Affair is the only nominee that year that I don't have in my collection. So I don't know which of those I'll get to along with Gone with the Wind before 
our, our next episode. But but I think it speaks volumes that that many of the nominees rise to the level of go out and buy. Yeah. And even looking at the other films that were not nominated here, um, other movies released in 39 that I own include Rules of the Game, The Roaring Twenties, Le Jour S'Elève, I know I recognize, I can't remember the English title right now, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. So yeah, we're, we are getting into some very competitive eras here. I think that generally the late 30s and early 40s can be very underrated by modern audiences who write off movies that old can't be good. And there's a lot of great stuff coming mm -hmm. in the next few years. All right. So I guess we'll just thank everyone for listening and invite everyone back next month when we discuss Gone with the Wind. So long, everyone. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. I want some more.